Good evening. Protests in Minneapolis on the day before jury selection starts in the trial of a cop who killed George Floyd by kneeling on his neck for nine minutes. Biden speaks out after passage of the American Recovery Act and right-wing Americans going to Ukraine to learn how to fight and kill. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Sunday, March 7th, 2021. President Biden announced a new executive order today directing federal agencies to promote access to voting. Biden's order comes on Bloody Sunday, the commemoration of the 1965 March on Selma, when 600 civil rights activists were viciously beaten by Alabama state troopers as they tried to march for voting rights. Democrats are pushing for a sweeping elections bill to counter efforts to restrict voting access. The voting rights bill includes provisions to restrict partisan gerrymandering of congressional districts strike down hurdles to voting and bring transparency to a murky campaign finance system that allows wealthy donors to anonymously bankroll political causes. Biden also paid tribute to the late civil rights giants. The Reverend C.T. Vivian, Reverend Joseph Lowry and Representative John Lewis all played critical roles in the 1965 organizing efforts in Selma and all died within the last year. And the trial of Derek Chauvin starts tomorrow. He's the Minneapolis cop caught caught on take, caught on tape, holding his knee on the neck of George Floyd for nearly nine minutes last May 25th. It's caused the United States to confront its institutionalized racism. Today, thousands of protesters march peacefully through the streets of Minneapolis. At the same time, many police agencies say they'll be working together to prevent a repeat of last summer's violence while preserving free speech. Our National Guard, our county, our local and our state resources, we come together with the primary responsibility of keeping all our communities safe. It is also very important that we ensure for everyone's constitutionally protected First Amendment right to gather and demonstrate peacefully. Commissioner of Public Safety for the state of Minnesota, Commissioner John Harrington. I can tell you from the experience of last year that in the midst of the riots, in the midst of the fires, in the midst of all that thing, the people's voices who really want to call out uh, the death of George Floyd could not be heard over the, the, the vitriol and over the ag- activity of folks that were there to destroy property and to hurt other people. The trial begins with jury selection and is expected to come down to two key questions. Did Chauvin's actions cause Floyd's death and were his actions reasonable? Chauvin is charged with second degree unintentional murder and second degree manslaughter and a panel of appeals court judges ruled Friday that the judge must consider reinstating a third degree murder charge that he dismissed last fall. Three other officers, all of whom also were fired, faced trial in August on charges of aiding and abetting the second degree murder and manslaughter slaughter counts. And Democrats are celebrating their razor-thin victory on passing the American Rescue Plan, providing $1.9 billion in aid, including $1,400 checks to more than 100 million Americans. President Biden took a victory lap after the bill passed. This plan will get checks out the door starting this month. Over 85 percent of American households will get direct payments of $1,400 per person. For a typical middle-class family of four, husband and wife working, making $100,000 a year total with three kids, 
with two kids, we get $5,600 and will be on the way soon. Unemployment benefits will be extended for 11 million Americans who've lost their jobs and last night again were lying in bed thinking, my Lord, I'm going to lose my unemployment insurance in a week or so. It's about to expire. Schools are going to have the resources they need to open safely. States and local governments that have lost tens of thousands of essential workers will be, have the resources they need available to them. To those laid off police officers, firefighters, teachers and nurses, they can rehire. There are, these are essential personnel. When I was elected, I said we were going to get the government out of the business of battling on Twitter and back in the business of delivering for the American people. Every public opinion poll shows overwhelming support for this plan. And that's Biden saying that his plan is bipartisan despite not receiving one Republican vote because the majority of Americans, both Republican and Democrat, support its passage. Interesting and unusual definition of bipartisan. Meanwhile, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, a key moderate Democrat, said Sunday he's open to changing Senate rules that could allow for more party line votes to push through other parts of the White House's agenda, such as voting rights. Democrats are beginning to look to their next legislative priorities after an early signature win for Biden on Saturday with the Senate approval of the COVID-19 relief plan on a party line 50 to 49 vote. Final passage is expected Tuesday in the House if leaders can hold the support of progressives frustrated that the Senate narrowed unemployment benefits and stripped out an increase to the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. And a court in Ukraine Wednesday rejected an extradition request for an American who served in the country's right-wing paramilitary units. The American, Craig A. Lang, an Army veteran and North Carolina native, had been charged in the United States in connection with a double murder in Florida. His case drew attention to the risk of Americans fighting for far-right groups in Ukraine and other global hotspots. Heidi Byrick is the director of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. She says, just as we don't want them in the American military, we don't want them, speaking of far-right extremists, training to fight and kill. There are some organizations on the Ukrainian side, in particular the right sector and the Azov Battalion, that have extreme far-right views. And when it comes to the Azov Battalion in particular, they have extensive outreach into white supremacist movements in the United States, but in also countries, and they've attracted a lot of foreign fighters to the region. Who are they fighting? They're training first off with Azov, and if they fully sign on, they're actually in the eastern part of Ukraine engaging with Russian-backed forces. On the Russian side, there are also a lot of foreign fighters from around the world who have traveled to that side of the conflict to get trained. For the most part, with American white supremacists, it's been on the Ukrainian side that they've been engaged. Is there a reason behind that, or is it just uh, because they're pro-West? They're pro-West, but there's also been this fascination for some time among American white supremacists in that entire region. And so we have people traveling there, not just to Ukraine, but to other parts of the Balkans. Many American white supremacists view, for example, the forces of 
the Bosnian war in the 1990s, the part that was against the Muslim population as having been heroes. So there's this sort of history of successful defeat of Muslims in the region by nationalized or racialized groups. And that's what's bringing people into that area. Is this a one person problem or is it are there people like him there? We're not really sure exactly how bad this problem is. The Sufan Center, which is a terror, you know, counterterrorism organization here in the United States, has documented a few dozen fighters with extremist ties who've been in the region on both sides of the conflict. Perhaps the most well-known are members of the Rise Above movement. That's an American neo-Nazi outfit out of Southern California. And three of its leaders trained uh, with the Azov Battalion, also engaged in MMA fighting. And the leader of that group, a guy named Robert Rundo, was actually just thrown out of Serbia about a week and a half ago when the government there discovered he was he was actually living there. Are they bringing this training back to the United States? Is that the plan? This is the fear. The fear is that they're getting training in how to kill, how to use weapons, bombs, etc. And they're either bringing that skill set back to their extremist group, whatever form it takes. Some of them are probably going to try to engage in the military here in the United States. We've got a problem with extremism in the military that the Pentagon is trying to deal with right now with this 90-day stand, stand down. And we've had just a whole host of people with either military backgrounds, active duty military included, who've been involved in extremist actions, including at the Capitol on January 6th. So we just don't need neo-Nazis or anybody of that ilk being trained in how to fight and how to kill. Once a person kills in war, it makes it so much easier, and then that barrier is gone. Once you've engaged in combat, it makes it easier to do it again. We don't want white supremacists in our military, and we don't want them fighting in Ukraine either. Is there a problem with how this is being dealt with? For the most part, it has been ignored until recently. The Azov Battalion got American military assistance for a while. That was banned a couple years ago. The point, though, is that we haven't been focusing on this, and it now looks like the FBI in particular is starting to visit people when they return from Ukraine to find out what's going on, which is a good sign. And that's Heidi Byrick, and she's the director or co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. U.S. authorities say they intend to focus on Ukrainian paramilitaries as one of the world's hubs for far-right extremists, an issue that shot to the top of the agenda this year after far-right groups demonstrated their potential for violence in the Capitol riot. Meanwhile, on Saturday, a stand-up to Asian hate rally was held in Sunnyside, Queens, in solidarity with the Asian Pacific Islander community. The rally was in response to an increase in violence and hate crimes in New York City. WBAI Sayed Haq was there and files this report. We are, we are not a virus. Since the pandemic, anti-Asian hate crimes have increased 28 cases in 2020 compared to three cases in 2019. NYC Council candidate in Bayside Jesse Lehman says there's another virus in the community besides COVID. Bigotry is itself an epidemic disease that is constantly mutating with new variants. The executive director for the Migrant Center, Father Julian, was one of the speakers whose volunteer's face was slashed on the L train weeks ago. He says anti-Asian stereotypes have resulted in many forms of attacks on the Asian community. Sean Bitten stabbed and accused as transmitters of the coronavirus. That's why, my friends, we should stand up against hate, hate against Asian community. I am here to serve you. Poetry Ranka Manis is a frontline worker. I am here to offer my life 
the way my other colleagues have offered their lives and died in the front line of this COVID-19. Let us not make hate succeed. Former Deputy Queensborough President Sharon Lee says this isn't the first time the Asian community has faced discrimination. This is not just a year ago when I would walk around and wonder, I don't know what's going to kill me first, COVID or racism. So I urge everyone to speak up, make a count, have it documented, and make sure that we are visible. Lee also warns not to ignore hatred against other groups. We got to make sure that anti-Asian racism is not an excuse for anti-black racism in our communities, and you know it's there. Anti-Latinx racism, colorism, that is very alive in the Asian American Pacific Islander community. We have a lot of work to do. Queens Council member Jimmy Van Bramer had an interesting solution to racism against the Asian community. If the violence is meant to silence, silence our Asian community and Asian brothers and sisters. What is more powerful as a response than having several Asian candidates for this city council seat? A community coming together and standing up against racist attacks. Sayed Haq, WBAI News, New York. And thank you, Sayed, who is our new WBAI News intern. In New York news, the New York State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins formally called on Governor Andrew Cuomo to resign shortly after the governor reiterated he would not step down in the wake of two more former aides alleging inappropriate workplace behavior. In a statement issued on Sunday, Stewart-Cousins said, every day there is another account that is drawing away from the business of government. We have allegations about sexual harassment, a toxic work environment, the loss of credibility surrounding the COVID-19 nursing home data and questions about the construction of a major infrastructure project. She continues, we need to govern without daily distraction for the good of the state. Governor Cuomo must resign. And in New York City, when is low-income housing really luxury housing? A newly released study by the group known as Village Preservation claims the city's Soho-NoHo rezoning plan will make these neighborhoods richer, whiter, and more expensive to live in than they are now, despite claims by Mayor de Blasio that the new buildings will bring low-income housing. The report, the report says the zoning plan would likely create significantly less affordable housing than projected, potentially destroying more affordable housing than it creates. One of the authors of the report is Executive Director of Village Preservation, Andrew Berman. The premise of the plan is that these are neighborhoods that are populated by nothing other than rich people living in nothing other than incredibly expensive housing. The only way to make them more diverse, more equitable and more affordable is through this upzoning plan, which would include provisions for new developments that include a percentage of affordable housing. Our study found would destroy probably as much affordable housing it was as it would create, possibly destroy more affordable housing, and that, in fact, the new buildings that would be built under the city's plan, even with the affordable housing included, would, in fact, be much whiter, much richer, and much more expensive overall than housing in the neighborhood and the population of the neighborhood currently is, that it would encourage the demolition of buildings that contain a significant amount of affordable housing, rent-regulated housing, and loft law housing. 
and that it would disproportionately impact people of color, especially Chinese Americans, and lower income people. And in fact, the statistics show that while there is clearly a significant number of people of very high incomes in these neighborhoods, the majority of people in these neighborhoods are still of low to moderate income, and they're the ones who would be pushed out by the mayor's plan. They, the people who were there before this influx of wealthier people came in more recent decades. Yes, for the most part. And interestingly, this shouldn't be a secret to the city because over the dozens of public meetings that have taken place over the last almost two years now about this proposal, the people who've turned out for it have not been the millionaires in their penthouses and limousines. It's been the folks who've lived in the neighborhood for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, which are still the majority of the people, most of whom are of very modest means. The people who didn't turn out for those meetings, unfortunately, because they've been given the impression that this doesn't affect them, are the predominantly lower income Chinese American residents of the part of the neighborhood that would be included in the upzoning. That's really more Chinatown, as well as in the adjacent. This is supposed to be a mayor of two New Yorks who are going to bring New Yorkers together. It doesn't look like that's what he's right. doing. The major beneficiaries of this plan would be the real estate developers who's, who've given quite generously to the mayor and who've lobbied for this plan. They would get to build buildings that are, in some cases, as much as two and a half times the size of what the current rules allow. The city actually wants to change the rules for this neighborhood to allow the maximum allowable size under New York state law for residential development. It would actually be 20% larger than what's allowed on buildings. Billionaires row. The way the mayor's rezoning plan is structured, in most cases, it would actually encourage commercial development, not even residential development. So our study has shown that about 80% of the projected affordable units that the mayor says his plan will create will probably never be built because what will be built on those sites under his own rezoning is commercial development, boutique office buildings, hotels, things of that nature that don't include any affordable housing whatsoever. The power that these special interests uh, put on the, the community, and uh, it's hard to say no. Even a politician who might have started out saying no, it's a tale we see much too often, which is that our elected officials capitulate to real estate interests and buy into the big lie that the only way to save New York is this sort of build baby build approach, ignoring the people who are going to be displaced and pushed out, just lining the pockets of developers and big real estate who always seem to win in these scenarios. Andrew Berman is the executive director of Village Preservation. And yesterday, laundry workers and their supporters marched to the Lower East Side to protest a company that they say is busting a union. The company, the Lyox Wash Supply Laundry Company chain, fired the immigrant women workers of Wash Supply Laundromat, a company they own. The union says it's because the workers won an election to unionize that workplace. Rosanna Rodriguez is co-founder of the Laundry Workers Center. She says, we won't put up with union busting against immigrant women workers in the very place where International Women's Day was born out of strikes by immigrant women and the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. 
during that period of time of the workers vote for the election and for the union, there was a lot of retaliation against the workers. And the company threatened the workers that if they continue with the idea of forming independent union inside the workplace, they were close down the laundromat. And they hire a union boosting consultant, and then they start cutting hours and doing all those things that employers do to make sure workers do not organize or unionize. They won the election on January 29th. A week after that, or two weeks after that, the National Relations Board certified the union. On February 19th, the company fired the workers, and the next day they closed down the laundromat. What they are doing is not legal because once the union is certified, they have to negotiate with the union the closure of the laundromat, and they have to prove that they are closing with for good reasons, and they have to prove it. In this case, they don't do anything. Right now, what we are doing is we are supporting the workers, so there are six immigrant women that decide for many years this company stole the wages. They work on bad health and safety conditions. During COVID, the company do not provide the protective gears or the PPE and do not follow any protocols to keep everybody safe. Because of that, they decide to organize. When they close down the laundromat, they take out all the machines. So we believe, like, you know, they move the machine to another location and they are doing some kind, they are continue operating. Before they closed down the laundromat, they were hiding people. And we believe, like, this is not coincidence. They're trying to avoid a union by uh, playing a shell game three-card Monty with the workers. You never know where they are. Exactly. That's what they're doing because there's a lot of unfair labor practices and they're not responding to them. Um, so they're trying to avoid responsibilities and escape from the union and the workers. What's happening next? There's ongoing investigation from the National Relations Board. We're hoping that there are some remedies for the workers. It's not legal that they close down without negotiating with the workers. Remedies are once they rehire the workers, two, they give a package of severance to the workers for the years that they've been working. If they rehire the workers, they have to recognize the union and negotiate with the union. Rosanna Rodriguez is co-founder of the Laundry Workers Center. And finally, WBAI is fighting for its existence once again. A group calling itself New Day Pacifica with support of the two Pacifica stations in California has pushed through a second referendum to change the foundation's bylaws to eliminate Pacifica's 20-year experiment in democracy. New Day Pacifica claims on its website that it's a group of Pacifica listeners and staff who want to save Pacifica and keep it from crashing out of existence. But former board chair and longtime activist Grace Aaron says the real reason is to sell WBAI. Proponents of this referendum from KPFA who have suggested selling the WBAI signal in order to fund the other stations. There also have been people stating the treasurer at uh, KPFA has stated that she feels that if any station can't make its bills, that it should be made into a repeater station, which is what was the attempt at WBAI. Yeah. 
NWBAI General Manager Bertolt Reimers countered claims that WBAI is not properly managed despite the problems of navigating the pandemic lockdown. The reason why WBAI is in the position it is today is uh, we had um, the West Coast stations uh, hindered the audit audit of the financial financials of the station. So we did not have our financials and then um, we lost our CPD funding. The CPD funding that we have lost is exactly equal to the amount of money that the WBI is in the red. In other words, twenty five, twenty to $25,000 a month is what the CPB used to give us. The plan put forward by the referendum would put four hand-picked managers in charge of the network. None are from WBAI or WPFW, our D.C. sister station. Aaron says none of the four have radio management experience. None of these have professional radio experience. None of these officers, they complain that we're not professional enough in Pacifica, but they have no radio experience. Notice that none of the officers are from either WPFW or WBAI, and none are from the staff or affiliates. So that means that basically WPFW and WBAI will be locked out of any real significant input into national governance of Pacifica. Aaron says if New Day Pacifica were to win the referendum, they would open the station up to corporate money and possibly, as a similar group tried for a month in November 2019, make WBAI, as was just said, a repeater station for content from California. Appointed boards, an emphasis on major donor fundraising, which will make, following that, will be programming that appeals to major donors, which will push our message to the right, of course, and probably there will be an effort to start having corporate underwriting will be NPRIs within a year or two. And there's also been some uh, red baiting is the best way to put it on their website. I noticed they were alleging that members of the Workers World Group, a pro-communist organization, were on our board members as if that was a problem contributing to Pacifica's problems. The vote is open to WBAI members, volunteers, and employees. But Aaron says if you signed up to the referendum and the petition that was being passed around and are really learning what happened, now that you might have done the wrong thing, you can remove your name. You can unsign it by going by emailing the National Election Supervisor at NES at Pacifica.org, N-E-S at Pacifica.org, and saying that you want to unsign, remove your name from this petition.